We're going to be a men and women of men and women of action today. That is, we're going to go through um, the book of Acts. So that's uh, I guess I guess we're just going to stay on that. Sorry, my clicker is not working again. BTI uh, has several requirements. One of them is that technology never helps us as much as we would like. So um, we are going to do the book of Acts. There it is, yay. <clears throat> and there's a lot to do here. It's a long book. It's a glorious book. But first of all, we ought to go to the Lord. This is a, this is a day that the church has rendered as holy for 20 centuries. So let's go to the Lord in accordance with that. Our Father, we come to you this day on our weekly remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We remember his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And this is the day, Lord, in particular, that uh, the church has traditionally worshipped you. And, and we think about even the, the glorious last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ chose the Lord's day to appear to John and to give him the revelation of the things to come and to demonstrate the the great revelation of a glorified Christ. And so this is a special day. But Lord, it's only special if we make it so and if we choose to set aside this day for you. And we pray that would be the case this day. We pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds, our affections would be turned to you, that we would forget the woes and the troubles of this world and we would look heavenward, that we would think on things that are above, that we would remember that our citizenship is in heaven and that we are citizens of a glorious kingdom yet to come. We pray this morning, Lord, as we consider the book of Acts, that you would be pleased with our efforts to know you through your word. And I pray that the result would be that we are better worshipers, that we are more humble, that we are more grateful to our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this morning, Lord. Be blessed, we pray, by our efforts to know you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, just a little bit of housekeeping here. Um, this is Module 4, Session 14, which is officially the last one in Module 4. Module 4 has been the, it's always the hardest and the longest one. Uh, next week, I will take a uh, kind of a time between Module 4 and 5, and we're going to go through something I do every couple of years called uh, the Reasons to Trust the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, this is very important for you to understand because um, I, I know this sounds weird if you're not in this world, but almost every seminary in the United States believes that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have contradictions in them. Um, that's, the, that's the normal evangelical view at this point in history. So we want to push back against that and show that the Word of God is the Word of God. And so we'll uh, dive into some detail about why you can trust the synoptic gospels. And I think you'll enjoy that. It's, it's an important topic for the church. But for today, we're going to end up on the book of Acts. And I'm not going to do a lot of introductory material because we did an introduction to Luke and Acts uh, as one work with two volumes a number of weeks ago. But just as a reminder, uh, the author, of course, is Luke, the only Gentile author. They're the readers uh, originally was a man by the name of Theophilus, a representative sort of, of of Gentile Christians. And so as you read through the book of Acts, it's important to get the, the purpose that Gentiles can be saved just like anyone else. And I would remind you that Theophilus acts as a representative of the least likely to be saved, that he's not Jewish, he's Roman, the very people that crucified Christ 
And he was a governor, a Roman governor, just like Pontius Pilate, who was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ from an earthly standpoint. So as you read through the book of Acts, if you simply read it with the lens of how is it that the lowest of the low can be saved, it really makes the book come alive and you understand that purpose. It was written probably two to four years after the Gospel of Luke, probably about AD 62 or so. And again, this is volume two of Luke and Acts. And put together, they, it makes up basically one-fourth of the entire New Testament as far as word count goes. Major themes in here, and I'm trying not to uh, repeat the ones we did in Luke and Acts. Those were unique to, to both books, or, or rather those were uh, broadly generic to both books. These are a little bit more uh, specific to Acts. The first theme, the outworking of God's sovereign plan. I think it's interesting that almost right off the bat, in Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2, he refers to the sovereignty of God. He calls Christ going to the cross according to the predetermined plan of God. And so immediately you're confronted with the, the sovereignty of God, that Christ on the cross was God's sovereign work. Uh, you get farther in Acts, uh, Acts 13.48, one of my favorite verses in Acts, that says that as many as were chosen for eternal life believed. And so you have the sovereignty of God there, um, and, and it's not as many as believed were chosen. It's a very clear order there. You have the theme of apostolic preaching. Every sermon in the book of Acts includes the death and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. That is eye-opening to me as a preacher, uh, if anybody ever says, well, you can't preach the death of Christ every time. Yes, we can. Because the apostles did. And I, I feel like they're a pretty decent example for us to look to. But what's very important is that the gospel message is validated by the resurrection. Uh, this is very prominent in, in the book of Acts. I, I'm always a little bit nervous, honestly, on the Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because if Christ returned right then and the rapture happened then, I think I would stand before God saying, why didn't you preach the resurrection last night? Well, we felt we would get to it tomorrow, Lord. That would be my answer, I suppose. But the, the sermons in Acts, it's always a death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ all in one shot. So I think I always mention the resurrection just so I have that little asterisk next to it. But the gospel message is validated by the resurrection. That's what says what we're saying is true. You have the theme of the rejection of Christ by Israel. Chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 13, chapter 22, chapter 28. Uh, major milestones. Peter's sermon of Acts 2, beginning of verse 22, basically uh, summarizes the Gospel of Luke. If you, if you read all of Luke and then quickly turn to Acts 2 and read Peter's sermon, it, it essentially is sort of a summary. And Peter reminds Israel that they put Messiah to death, but they can be forgiven. You have chapter 7, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jerusalem council, corporately rejecting the message of Stephen. And Stephen points out to them that this only culminates Israel history, Israel's history of continually rejecting God's messengers to them. That, that this is just the, the culminating factor that they've always done this. Stephen called them stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. This is Old Testament language for being unsaved, for being unfaithful, for being covenant 
breakers. And so they would know that language. And in fact, um, at the end of that sermon, it says they were cut to the quick by Stephen's message. It's a, an idiom, a, a phrase that means that they were pained. They were, they were cut deeply. Now the choice was clear to them. You either circumcise the heart, you get saved, or you kill the messenger. And what did they do? They killed the messenger. Stephen had a vision just before his execution, just as they're getting ready to reject the message finally by, by executing Stephen, they get one last chance, and they hear him say, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And so, he declares, even as he was dying, the Lordship and the Messiahship of Jesus. If I could put it this way, Stephen's death was very, very Jewish. Because to his dying day, to his dying moments, he worshipped the true Messiah of Israel. And he told those watching, I see him right now. One last chance for them to say, stop, wait, don't do this. But they didn't. Every other place that the gospel goes, for the most part in the book of Acts, you have two things happening. You have, for the most part, the Jews rejecting the gospel and for the most part, the Gentiles receiving the gospel. Except one time in the city of Berea, the Jews were the ones that are called the noble ones who searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. And what happened to the, to the Berean church? They became a strong church. Uh, in, in fact, in our tradition today, there are many churches named Berean Bible Church because the idea is to search the scriptures. So you have the rejection of Christ by Israel. Now, let me put a different twist on this. This is very important because this sort of caps off the Old Testament. The Old Testament uh, ends with this, uh, this horror of Israel being rejected by God. And you, you say, well, what's going to happen? Well, the next page, obviously, Matthew 1, 1, Messiah has come. But the book of Acts kind of continues this rejection. But why is this here? Why not rather, in the book of Acts, just have a, a summary statement that says... Uh, Israel is done in about uh, 70 AD, which is just a few years after Acts will be written. We're done with Israel. Heaven is done with Israel. Israel is going to be gone. Jerusalem is destroyed. God's plan for Israel is done. Why go to all the trouble to demonstrate how recalcitrant Israel is? Well, because God will get all the more glory when he restores Israel. When saved Jews read the book of Acts and shake their head and say, that was me. That was me. So I take a positive spin on this. The rejection of Christ by Israel is is greatly detailed because God will receive glory when there is an actual restoration of Israel. You have the theme of, and I've alluded to this already, of the acceptance of Jesus by the Gentiles. Acts 13.48, as many as were appointed or were chosen to eternal life believed. That's speaking of Gentiles. They had already been chosen. Now, this is pretty interesting, isn't it? This means that the church age of primarily Gentiles was not a plan B. It was not, as older dispensational thought uh, says, some sort of parenthesis in God's plan. If Gentiles were chosen then they were part of God's plan all along because according to Ephesians 1, when are all saved people chosen before the foundation of the world. So the church age was always God's plan. Beginning in Acts chapter 13, those who embrace Christ are less and less Jews and more and more they're Gentiles. 
And that continues to be the case today. In fact, uh, you could trace the ministry of the Apostle Paul and basically his ministry looked like this. Go to a new city, find a synagogue, stand up and start preaching the word in the synagogue. Either leave or get thrown out because none of the Jews want to hear it except maybe a few and then find Gentiles who accept the gospel. That was his pattern all the way through his ministry. Then you have, of course, the theme of the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ. This is in accordance with Jesus' prediction of a church, Matthew 18. And as we've said before, what is the singular, the highlighted, the prioritized, unique feature of the church? It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what sets us apart from from Israel of old. That's what sets us apart from uh, those in the book of Acts who were called God-fearers. They were not saved, and yet they feared God, and they were on their way to faith by by the grace of God. But the church is made up of those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we could spend all day just on that. But we'll move on to, uh, obviously, major theme is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And for some reason in my notes, I have zero notes under that. So let's just talk about this for a moment. The official name of the book is the Acts of the Apostles. I, I think you could easily call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is obviously prominent in the book of Acts. And it's, it, it's an amazing, really kind of theme to trace. How does the theme the, of the Holy Spirit begin? Well, obviously in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, you have this glorious uh, event where the apostles have uh, tongues of fire on top of their heads. And you hear this wind like, a, like the roar of a train uh, just being so loud that people were coming by the thousands to come hear what was happening. You have uh, them being indwelt by the Holy Spirit for the first time, preaching the gospel boldly and in languages that they had never learned before, 15 of them listed. So the inauguration of the church age is, is the Holy Spirit probably really at the pinnacle of, of the Bible's revelation of the Spirit of God. And if I could put this in slightly human terms, at the risk of offending God, I don't want to do that, but... This was the Holy Spirit's moment to shine. But of course, how does the Holy Spirit shine? By pointing the glory of God to to Christ. Pointing to Christ. Pointing people to Christ. And he does so in glorious fashion. We'll talk about that, uh, the the tongues of fire and things like that in a bit. But all throughout uh, the book of Acts, it is the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit. Um, Several times in Acts, uh, we read of the word spreading and being fruitful. What, what is that? That's the work of the Spirit. And we read of the Spirit uh, empowering the preachers of the word. And so uh, the ministry of the Spirit is, is gloriously highlighted in the book of Acts. Then you have the theme of the controversy regarding Gentile salvation. The problem that happened in the early church A problem is that Gentiles receiving Christ were not immediately accepted by Jewish Christians. There was a division. Both Peter and Paul had to answer to Jews for ministering to Gentiles. And so that problem is is put to rest, though, in both Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 15. Then you have an anticipation of God's future work in Israel. I mentioned this already, but I'm going to reemphasize it. Even though Acts emphasizes the rejection of Israel, there's, there's no indication in Acts anywhere 
the Gentile believers have replaced national Israel in God's plan, in God's purposes. The kingdom is still coming. Acts 14 says this. Israel's rejection doesn't mean that there's an end to God's ultimate fulfillment of his promise to Israel to establish the kingdom on earth. In fact, in Peter's second recorded sermon in Acts chapter 3, he calls the people who are listening men of Israel. If the church had replaced Israel after Acts chapter 2, he would not address them this way. He said, repent therefore, addressing the men of Israel, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That is Israel's restoration all over the place. He said, get saved now and then wait for Christ to come back because you're going to be amazed. He will fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament to our nation. That is a, that is a Jewish sermon to Jewish men. So those are just some, some basic themes through Acts and kind of have a, a shortened purpose. We could have a longer one, but the... The apostolic witness, that is the word of God, spread in accordance with the plan of God from Jerusalem all the way to Rome and was proclaimed to both Jews and Gentiles. The apostolic witness, that is the word of God, spread in accordance with the plan of God from Jerusalem to Rome and was proclaimed to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, we always do literary structure and and I I never want to downplay that. In this case in particular, I, I think the literary structure of Acts is among the most interesting of any book in the Bible because there's a couple of ways you could look at it and it's, it's spectacular. Uh, the first way you could divide up the book is geographically. And in fact, unlike um, most books of the Bible, there's a verse in Acts that actually tells you what's coming in the rest of the book and it outlines it. It gives a broad outline. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That is the outline of the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7, the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea. Chapters 8 through 12, the gospel in the northern territory of Samaria. And chapters 12 through 28 to the ends of the earth. Where's the, what's the last geographic notation we have in Acts? It is the city of Rome. Uh, Rome is the hub of the world at that point. And so that is representative of the ends of the earth. So there's the geographical structure. Very, very interesting. There is the biographical structure. Only a, a book written by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, uh, can have multiple structures that lay right perfectly on top of each other. It's a phenomenally supernatural structure. But you have Peter in chapters 1 through 12, and you have Paul in chapters 13 through 28. And you might say, well, that, that doesn't seem very supernatural. First, God wrote about one guy and then God wrote about another one. Well, let me prove to you that this is supernatural. And don't try to take notes on this. That would, would be here all day. But first of all, I want to show you what some call the echo structure of Acts. And if you don't get anything else, just get this, that these two columns echo each other. You have this order of events, generally speaking, a return to and from Jerusalem, you have assembled prayer. You have a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. You have apostolic preaching. You have a lame man who is healed. You have a speech that begins, men, and asking the question, why? 
You have the persecution of the apostles. You have dissension in the church. You have a mission to the Gentiles. You have a vision. You have the command to come. You have the company of Gentiles. You have a Jerusalem defense. You have an imprisonment. And you have a a testimony of the success of the word. That is a supernatural structure. And it is emphasizing that God is in charge of the gospel. But we could take this even a step further going back to previous slide where you might say, well, Peter and Paul, okay, God wrote about one guy and then the next. Why is that supernatural? Here's the structure based on Peter and Paul. Both filled with the Holy Spirit. Both preach a message to the men of Israel. Both heal a lame man. Both raise up a dead person. Both confront a magician. Somebody in the, in the, in the dark arts of of magic. Both have a shadow or handkerchief healing. These odd sorts of healings that are very apostolic in nature. Both have prison chains loosed. Both uh, find themselves in somewhat of a trance while in prayer. Both have a vision that leads to their preaching. Both are addressed by an angel and both preach three major evangelistic messages. This is a supernatural book and it should be read as such. And so I just wanted to point that out. I, I think that the mature and growing Christian, as you begin reading the book of the Bible, you ought to concern yourself with what is the structure, what's going to happen. Now, I will say this by way of a little bit of shepherding. If your habit is to read about uh, one chapter of the Bible every other week, you won't ever catch this. Structure becomes important when you take in some volume of Scripture and you begin to see that God has a big picture. And I think that keeps us from missing the the forest because we're paying attention to the trees only. And so pay attention to structure. And I would urge you, um, especially after having gone through Bible Training Institute, if you're you're writing the papers, every time you start a book of the Bible, on the first day you start it, uh, find out what the structure is. Read an introduction to the book. Take some notes down. And, and kind of note where the major uh, sections are in the book. That helps make the book come alive. And it keeps us from the American sentimental Christian uh, tendency of just taking verses out of context because they make me feel good. Um, I, you know, we have these in our home, but there's a certain part of me that doesn't ever want just one verse on a, on a placard or on a poster. And we all do that. And I have a bunch in my dining room, so don't come and go, aha, hypocrite, but... But at least I can explain the context of all those verses. But that is the American evangelical way, isn't it? Pull out a verse that makes me feel good and have no concern for what's all around it. Structure helps you understand what God is trying to say, not what I'm trying to grab out of it. And so I I just think this is so important. We'll always uh, emphasize structure. Now, the book of Acts, and I mentioned when we went through Acts and Luke and Acts, um, I mentioned that... The study of the book of Acts has been elevated significantly in the last 50, 60 years. That there have been more commentaries written on Acts in the last uh, five decades than probably all 20 centuries before that. And what's the reason for that? It is the charismatic movement. We have them to thank for this. The book of Acts, they have tried to claim it as their own, like it belongs to them. We'll come to that in a minute. Um, But it has uh, made us study Acts. But there are some significant interpretive issues. What do we do with the command to be baptized in Acts 2.38? Because it sounds a little suspicious at first reading. 
Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Many traditionally take this as an excuse to say that water baptism is necessary for forgiveness, that that is a a stipulation of salvation. Others would take it a little further, saying that baptism happens on the basis of forgiveness, and that has a lot of merits to it, but it doesn't really explain the verse very well. What we would hold to is that the baptism here, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus. Do I have the verse up there? I don't have the verse up there. Um, That we could put, as it were, in parentheses, the phrase and be baptized, and even maybe place it in a different place in the sentence. What does this mean? It means that only repentance is necessary for salvation. Baptism is subsequent to salvation. There's a few arguments for this. There's the grammatical argument Um, repent is a second person plural in Texas they would say y'all repent be baptized though is a third person singular each one of you and then you will receive the Holy Spirit the gift of the Holy Spirit you have a second person plural again what does that mean it means for us that there's that there's a parenthesis there the third person singular is parenthetical so in fact you could easily translate this repent and be saved and be baptized that would make sense You have another piece of evidence. The near context uh, says only repentance is necessary for salvation. In the very next chapter, Acts 3.19, Peter says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. What's necessary for salvation? Repentance only. There's a third uh, bit of evidence. The farther context says that only repentance is necessary for salvation. That's all of the book of Acts. Repent, repent, repent. And the farthest context, all of the New Testament There is no explicit passage, no direct statement that baptism is necessary for salvation. There there isn't one. And so we would take uh, one more bit of evidence, the example of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, a Gentile who was saved and then baptized. That was the clear order there. So how do you understand that? You you don't suddenly make a huge doctrinal shift based on one verse. And uh, I take comfort from this because... Um, this particular verse is inspired. It's in this order because that's what the Holy Spirit wanted. Uh, Again, though, I think you could translate it, repent and be saved and be baptized. But I take comfort from it because every preacher accidentally says something that's, that's heretical without knowing it because we're fallible. So I'm thankful that even there's an inspired difficulty that we have to wrestle with. So that, that gives me a little bit of comfort. But what's the order of events? You repent, you're saved, and then you're baptized. Then you have James's use of Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 in Acts 15. And you have probably haven't read Acts 15 and said, well, this calls up a whole slew of issues for me, but let me, let me present the problem and then we'll present the solution. Here's what he said. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon that is speaking of the the old man who saw Christ, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Now, I I read a big chunk, but what is the issue with that? 
The issue is that this is often taken to say that the Gentiles are now the new Israel. That the Gentiles are what God has moved on to permanently. There's a couple of major views of this passage. The first one is that this is a complete fulfillment of this prophecy from Amos 9 right here in the present. And that would be, I would say, a majority view, particularly among covenant theologians. Then you have the, the view that this is present Gentile salvation is a lot like future Gentile salvation. And we would say that, yeah, that is, that is correct. The reason this is a difficult passage is this is supposedly the clearest passage in the New Testament to convince anyone that the church is now Israel. That is the primary amillennial view, that the church is now Israel. The majority view says what Amos prophesied is now uh, completed, it's been fulfilled, and the evidence they give is that uh, it is written, that it's done. Other evidence says after these things. Now is when we get to where it's a little bit tricky. After these things. In the context of the book of Amos, what are the things that Amos says after this, the Gentiles will come in salvation? It is after the devastating judgments on Israel. What would the amillennials say? They would say that this is a restoration of the rule of David and it's happening now. Premillennials would say it's a restoration of the rule of David. It's happening later. Amillennials will say that as Gentiles are being brought to, uh, brought to faith, the Davidic rule is being established and this is fulfilled right now. What is this actually saying? All James is saying is affirming that in Amos chapter 9, God says that even in the millennium, even in the time after Israel's trouble, even after the time when Christ is ruling on earth, Gentiles are still saved as Gentiles. They're not suddenly having to become Jews. It's very significant that this happens in Acts chapter 15 because what was the issue? Do Gentiles have to become Jewish to be saved? So all it's saying is that even in the millennium, Gentiles are saved as Gentiles. It has nothing to do with the church replacing Israel. That is not there at all. And why does he bring up Simeon? What Simeon predicted in Luke chapter 2, that Gentiles and Jews will be saved, is as he held baby Jesus, as he just said that's exactly what's going to happen in the future. So, we don't misuse that to say that the church has replaced Israel. Speaking of misuse, I think we could safely say that the book of Acts is the most abused and misused book of the New Testament in the church age. And so let's talk about, uh, let's do this from the, from a negative. How to misuse the book of Acts. The first way to misuse it is to take it as the exact pattern for how to do church today. Now, are there tons of principles that we can take? Uh, there are. I preached a whole series called Our Gift to Jesus, and we went through all the principles we could learn from the church at Jerusalem. But I'll show you in a moment that it can't be an exact pattern. There are great principles that we derive, but this was a transitional time. There are things happening that have not happened since. And so transition is okay. It, it didn't happen like this. The transition to the church age did not happen with this glorious day of Pentecost. And then 3,000 people suddenly went. And all of a sudden on every church, on every uh, corner in, 
in uh, Jerusalem, there was, oh, look at that. There's a Jerusalem Baptist Church right over there. And, and look, they're, they're preaching through this book. And look over here, there's a, there's a Pentecostal church. That's the church I used to go to before I came a Baptist. And look over here, it didn't transition to suddenly be the way things are today. There was a long transition period, and some would argue all the way through the time of uh, even the third century. That's when the church kind of settled in um, because for 200 plus years, the church was on the run uh, trying to avoid persecution because it was everywhere. So we wouldn't say it's the exact pattern for how to do the church today. Uh, there's, there's a church I drove by once called uh, the Book of Acts Church. I'm like, well, that's a, but that's interesting in there how they do that. I want to go in and see if they have tongues of fire anywhere because that would be cool. I would go in to see that. Another way to misuse Acts that is the primary theological basis for our complete understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I, I think that is a mistake. We don't understand something as major in Scripture as a person of the Trinity by looking at just one book. And if you're ever in a discussion with a charismatic or a Pentecostal and they start talking about the Holy Spirit, I would challenge them to examine what the rest of Scripture says about the Holy Spirit and then put that filter on the book of Acts, not putting the filter of the book of Acts on the rest of Scripture because there's way, way more. So it's not our primary theological basis for understanding the Holy Spirit's ministry. Another way to misuse Acts, the primary way that's happening today is the pattern for continued use of miraculous gifts. Uh, Later on this summer, I'm going to preach a whole message on why the miraculous gifts have ceased and why that has to be the case. It's not a pattern for the use of the miraculous gifts. In fact, it doesn't happen that often even in the book of Acts. It just happens a handful of times. It is not the pattern. And I'll prove this here in a moment. Here's a fourth way to misuse the book. Forget the uniqueness of the reception of the Holy Spirit. This kind of goes along with the third one about uh, this being the pattern for the continual use of the miraculous gifts. But forget about how unique the reception of the Holy Spirit was. The reception of the Holy Spirit, there are five very unique instances in the book of Acts. Four of them involve groups, and one involved an individual speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages. They're human languages. That's very clear from the, from the context and from the actual uh, words used. Speaking in tongues accompanied at least three of, these, three of these instances and maybe more. You have the apostles receiving the Holy Spirit. You have the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. You have Paul receiving the Holy Spirit in dramatic fashion. You have the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. And you have the disciples of John the Baptist receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but all five of those, four groups and one individual, are key, key milestones, key markers for uh, the church and for us theologically. Well, let's just go through them real quick. The apostles, they must be men filled with the Holy Spirit. They must be men who receive the Holy Spirit because they're going to preach the gospel to everyone else. And what was Peter's promise back in Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know what that is? That is the first time in history that any preacher of God ever promised the Holy Spirit to somebody. That's huge. And so the apostles must receive the Holy Spirit. They must have tremendous evidence that this is a work of God. What was the initial evidence? The initial evidence was that this great wind blowing, uh, tongues of fire hanging out over them, and they're preaching in many other languages that they had never learned. Remember, these are not 
super well-educated men. They're educated, but not super well-educated. They didn't learn 15 languages, but the Holy Spirit did, uh, gave it to them. Then you have the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. Why is that key? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And now they come face to face with the fact, oh, the gospel is for even the worst of the worst. You have the Apostle Paul receiving the Holy Spirit with, with, in dramatic fashion. Why is that important? That's important because he, according to his own testimony, was a persecutor of the church and literally the worst sinner ever. And so he had to be, if you recall, Acts chapter 9, the believers in Damascus were a little bit scared of him uh, because he was the chief persecutor of the church. And they were like, well, I don't want to be around you. So there was a dramatic uh, conversion for Paul. You have the Gentiles. Well, if the Samaritans, at least they're half Jewish, but the Gentiles, if they're receiving Christ, if they're receiving the Holy Spirit, the apostle Peter had to be convinced of this and he passed on to the other apostles. The Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. The gospel is for everyone. Then you have the disciples of John the Baptist showing that those who follow uh, a, a repentance-only model without Christ, their, their knowledge is insufficient. And so the disciples of John the Baptist didn't understand that John was really pointing to Christ, not to himself. And so every one of those major instances, a minimum of three accompanied by miraculous gifts, are huge milestones in the church Basically, it's like the miraculous gifts and these uh, unique receptions of the Holy Spirit. It's like taking a giant boulder, throwing it into the middle of a pond and letting all the ripples wave go, go out. And that's what happened in Acts. One more way to misuse Acts. I've used this phrase a lot, and so let's uh, be more precise. Mistaking the filling of the Spirit in Acts for the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. In the book of Acts... The apostles are instructed to wait on the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, believers are instructed to act, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, we could take very easily from Colossians 3, which is a parallel passage, that to be filled with the Holy Spirit means to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be filled with the Spirit of God, the word of God. In Acts, the Holy Spirit initiated filling. In Ephesians 5.18, believers are commanded to be filled. And it's a continual command. It's a, it's a verb that tells us over and over again. Um, one of my favorite stories about this verse is a, a wonderful preacher named Stuart Briscoe who was preaching on the Holy Spirit. And uh, an older lady in his church came up to him and said to him, Mr. Briscoe, have you been filled with the Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit? And he said, I was theologically what he just said was I was in a good place I was obedient to the Lord you just irritated me and my thoughts sinned against you that's what he said very theologically accurate we're commanded to be filled it's a daily thing the book of Acts filling is permanent filling is permanent Acts or Ephesians 5.18 this type of filling occurs repeatedly in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is the content of the filling of the Spirit. And in Ephesians 5.18, the Holy Spirit is the agent of filling. Now, there's a whole other set of controversies around the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. I won't go into that now. But if you're going to take it as being filled with the Holy Spirit, it is, it is possible to call that as being filled in your spirit. And there's an argument for that, which I won't do right now. 
but the filling of the Spirit in Acts is different than the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5 and throughout uh, our, our commands to uh, walk in the Spirit and so forth from Galatians 5. I wanted to do two more things, and I think this will be helpful to you. Going back to the first point here, ways to misuse Acts, it's the exact pattern for how to do church today. And the third point, it is the pattern for continued use of the miraculous gifts. I'd like to just show you that the book of Acts is clearly transitional. It's, it's wonderful and it is inspirational and we derive great principles from it. But I want to just give you a very short list of things in Acts that have not happened since and they should not be construed as a pattern for the church. Sorry, can we advance that slide? It went to sleep on us there. So here's uh, just a short list of 10. I, I had a list of like 25, but it would take a little too long. Things that have not happened since and should not be construed as a pattern for the church. Being taught in person by the resurrected Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's never happened since the book of Acts. If we say, well, that's the pattern for the church, we have a big problem. We're already dead in the water at that point. Speaking in tongues, other languages. Uh, sometime down the road soon, every, every couple of years, I do a, a whole lecture on this, but I'm going to preach a sermon on it. Since the time of the apostles... There has not been a single provable, observable case of somebody miraculously learning another language. And you have to be very, very clear about this. In, in charismatic circles, in the Pentecostal church, you're taught that uh, speaking in tongues is a, what do we call it? A prayer language. And it's, it's just a, a, a nonsensical language that nobody can understand. But going all the way back to Acts chapter 2, 15 languages that are being spoken are listed. It's a specific word that means human language. And as a matter of fact, for those of you who are former Pentecostals, I would go back to the history of the Pentecostal church itself, beginning in the very, very early years of the 1900s. What did the Pentecostal church originally believe about the gift of tongues? They originally believed that it was human languages. The Pentecostal church in the first 20 years of the 20th century was the greatest sending agency for missionaries in the world. Why was that? Because they genuinely believed that they could give some basic training in the Bible to Pentecostals, send them elsewhere across the world, avoid four years of language training, and that they would instantly be able to speak in tongues and understand the language of natives that they were ministering to. How did that work out? A lot of two-way tickets home because they went and... Nothing happened, and so they came home. Pentecostal church had a problem, historically. The problem is, is that their grand experiment to go back to the day of Pentecost utterly failed, and everybody knew it. So what did they do? They changed the definition of tongues to be in a prayer language. So that's just, that's just history. That has not happened since. We wouldn't have a Spanish ministry. We wouldn't have a translator right behind that window every Sunday morning if the gift of tongues were, were in operation, that would be glorious. So that has not happened. How about this one? Tongues of wind and of fire and wind happening. I have never seen anybody with a little tongue of fire hanging out over his head. But if a church says we're the book of Acts church, then you should go in, you should expect that. That's what you should, you should expect to see. You don't have Christians selling all their possessions. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. 
Boy, if that were the, if that were the case, we would have built our new building like two years ago. If we just tell everybody we're going to preach that you sell all your possessions. Now, the problem is we need stuff in the world. Why were Christians selling all their possessions? Because they were in a time of transition. And all of a sudden, uh, for example, a Jew coming to faith in Christ who fully expected to inherit his father's business that had belonged to his grandfather, that had belonged to his father before him, being kicked out of the family, being shunned, being set aside with no way to make a living, no way to, to live in this world. And so the church came alongside one another. The church uh, was, was glorious, but we don't preach that today. We don't preach that you ought to sell all your possessions. You'll just have to go buy more of them. You don't have liars being struck dead, Acts chapter 5. As much as it's tempting to pray for that, that, w- that would be glorious on occasion. Book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6 says that all liars uh, are, are unbelievers. Those who are habitual liars, they're unbelievers. They have no place in the kingdom. But in Acts chapter 5, liars were struck dead. That is Ananias and Sapphira. Now that's a separate issue. Were they saved or not? We, we covered that in Luke and Acts. Um, but liars being struck dead doesn't happen in the church today. What do we do today? What we have today is what Jesus prescribed. We have church discipline. We, we, we don't see them struck dead, but we do what is even worse because you could make the, the argument that Ananias and Sapphira were disciplined, that they were disciplined in the Lord and went straight to heaven. What we do today is, I think, is worse is that we treat somebody as an unbeliever if they absolutely will not repent of an observable, clear sin. But we don't have liars being struck dead, at least not by an apostle, for sure. The sixth thing that's not happening today have never happened since. You, uh, apostles having the authority to strike dead with a word. That would be terrifying, wouldn't it? Every time a guy says, I'm an apostle. Oh no, I'm not going to come close to him because I think I lied to somebody yesterday and he might find out. Apostles having authority to strike dead with a word. How about this one? Being physically transported by the Spirit. Philip in Acts chapter 8. I've been told that there are no examples of rapture in the Bible. There are. There's at least seven or eight. Uh, most of them are vertical. Some of them are horizontal. There's Jesus on the road to Emmaus after walking to these men's house and, and, and they recognize him, whoop, and he's gone. Then you have Philip, whoop, he's gone too. Whoop is the Greek word for uh, a, a horizontal physical transport. But we don't see that now. I've never been preaching and seeing somebody just disappear. Uh, sometimes I wish that could happen. No, that's not the case really. That doesn't happen today. So if you're going to say, well, the book of Acts is the model for us, then you've got to really, we've got to step up our game here. We need people being transported all over the place. The eighth thing you don't see, unsaved men being told in a vision which evangelist to send for. Cornelius in, in chapter 10 being told by the Spirit of God, send for Peter so that you may hear the gospel and be saved. I would love that. I would love to get a phone call or an email from someone saying, I don't know Christ, but the Holy Spirit told me to have you come preach to my house so that we could be saved. I would love that. That's not happening in Acts now. What did Jesus tell us to do instead? Go therefore into all the world, making disciples, teaching them to obey me, to obey what I've commanded. You have a ninth thing that hasn't happened since, shouldn't be construed as a pattern for the church. The unusual way the Spirit was introduced to the four groups and to Paul just to be very clear, there are other chapters in Acts that mention conversions without unusual experiences. And so to try to tie 
an emotional or spiritual experience to the moment of salvation is very artificial. It's very artificial. And I think uh, of all the horrible movements in church history, the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement, of all the movements are the most guilty of giving false assurance of salvation because they psychologically manipulate people into, uh, into doing things that make them uh, appear to be saved. Well, you just spoke in tongues, so you must be saved. That is false assurance of salvation. We have even within our church here the testimony of many that came by God's grace to realize that they were not saved, that they were just doing something that was, that was foisted upon them. And then the last thing that hasn't happened since or shouldn't be construed as a pattern for the church, the need for apostles to teach us. The book of Revelation chapter 2, it gives a, it gives a, a uh, critique and a criticism of the church at Ephesus. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later this morning. And that critique is that they lost their first love. That wasn't unrecoverable. But one of the great compliments that the Lord Jesus gave them is that anybody who called themselves an apostle, they said, uh-uh, no. There are no more apostles. And they called them out as false teachers. What do you do with a pastor or when you drive by a church and it says pastored by apostle, so-and-so? It's a false teacher. There are no more apostles. Um, that's just, we'll put it this way. An apostle was the highest ranking uh, representative of God on earth. Who's going to commission an apostle? They're always, today, self-commissioned. And so they're fake. They're false. We don't need apostles. Why do we not need apostles? Acts 2.42. The church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. How did they do that? Guys like Peter and James and John showed up to your house and said, let me tell you what Jesus said. And they taught these things. Jesus promised the apostles in the upper room that after he had left and the Holy Spirit came upon them, the Spirit would bring to their remembrance every single thing that Jesus taught them. Now, do you think that the Gospels, which only record between 50 and 60 actual days of the ministry of Christ, do you think the Gospels themselves contain everything that Jesus taught the apostles? No, but we have a record of everything Jesus taught the apostles. It's our New Testament. You don't need apostles. Apostles are men who say, uh, today, the false apostles say, I know more than this book. And so I'm going to tell you what I think. So we don't need them. So... The book of Acts, it's a glorious book, but it shouldn't be construed as the pattern for the church. We take principles from it. Um, I've learned more about preaching from the book of Acts than from any other book of the Bible. Because I look at those sermons, they always preach the death of Christ, always preach the resurrection of Christ. Um, The biggest thing I've ever learned reading the sermons in the book of Acts is that the apostles almost never use a second person plural pronoun. They rarely say, we need to follow Christ. They always say, you need to follow Christ. And they're authoritative. So yes, we can learn great things from Acts, but it's not the norm for today. One more thing. Let's do some lessons from the book of Acts. What can you learn? The first thing we would learn is that the Spirit moves as the Spirit wills. The charismatic church, one of their fundamental errors is believing that they can manipulate the Spirit of God. They can't manipulate the Spirit of God any more than we can today. Uh, John chapter 3, 
Jesus presents to Nicodemus a very high, elevated, and respectful and honoring view of the Holy Spirit when he says, the Spirit moves like the wind where the Spirit wants to go. And so how dare us say that if you walk 30 feet from the back of the room up here, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. What did Peter say? He comes the closest. Repent and be baptized and you will be saved and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was simply explaining what the Spirit was going to do. But that was the Spirit moving in him to say that, right? Here's another lesson. You have 28 chapters of original early church history that proves that God is vitally interested in the mission of the church. That is a huge chunk of our New Testament to show us that we're interested in the church. <clears throat> Somebody asked me um, just a couple of weeks ago, what's, what are your favorite theological topics to preach? And of course, Christ has to be at the top. But I think preaching the church is my favorite uh, besides Christ. And the book of Acts gives me precedent for that. It's a huge chunk of New Testament literature that says God is vitally interested in the mission of the church. We also learn the lesson from the all-out sacrificial nature of the early church. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that we don't sell all of our possessions today. That's not our calling, but neither is it to hang on to all of them. Our, our calling is to sacrifice. And I, I just, I guess... I don't, know if this is, uh, I don't know if this is good or the way God made me or it's just part of my, my, my makeup. But I refuse to beg Christians to do something except to beg you to do something or else God will come after you. I, why would we beg to be part of something that is the greatest movement in the history of the world? And that is the church of Jesus Christ. We don't beg. We're... We're, we're believers, we're worshipers. Of course we sacrifice. Of course we do that which is normal. Uh, the preachers talk about, well, you shouldn't preach on giving. I, I want to preach on giving all the time. Well, because you don't own anything. It all belongs to God. He lets you keep almost all of it. I think that's pretty generous compared to Christians selling all their possessions in chapter 2 and chapter 4. So the lesson is, looking back, what was it that drove these people to take everything they owned and lay it at the apostles' feet. What a compulsion. What a, a joy to say, I am saved. I am in a new institution, the church of Jesus Christ. Take everything I have for the sake of the gospel. That is a phenomenal lesson for us. The all-out sacrificial nature of the early church. I think similarly, the all-or-nothing attitude of the early church. The church of Jesus Christ, first in Jerusalem, then in Samaria, and then in the other cities, th this wasn't a cultural addition to their life. This was not, well, I've got my normal life, and then I'm adding Christ to it. This was a life and death proposition for them. The, the history of Rome in the 200 years after Christ is riddled with Roman soldiers going from city to city, finding Christians and digging pits outside the city and starting giant bonfires and pushing entire families of Christians into this bonfire. It was an all or nothing proposition. So yet again, I as a preacher of the gospel have no problem asking Christians to sacrifice because you'll never sacrifice what the early church did. You never will. And along those lines, we love from the book of Acts the singular focus on the spread of the gospel and the discipling of believers. The spread of the gospel and the discipling of believers. Um, one of our pastoral staff who will remain unnamed, may or may not be Darren, uh, 
showed the staff a, a video, and it was sad and hilarious all at the same time, of uh, a little charismatic church with about 20 people in it, and somebody badly attempting to zip line from the back of the church down to the stage where people are supposedly speaking in tongues and raising their hand and having a horrible experience. The funny part was that the zip line wasn't very well constructed and the, the poor person coming down had to stick their feet up straight up in the air to miss all the people over their heads. And I watched that and after we were done laughing at the ridiculousness of it, you think, what does that have to do with the gospel? What does it have to do with discipling believers? That's not a church, not even close. You read the book of Acts and it tells you, oh, this is the church. And so I would encourage you once a year, get through the book of Acts, read through it and be reminded of what Christians do that are all in for the gospel and for the discipling of other believers. We ran out of time to have questions, but we can do it next week if you want. And we'll go through reasons to trust the synoptic gospels. Uh, Let's pray real quick. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had in Acts. I, I pray God, that we would be a church that is, is one that would make the early church proud, in a sense. Our, our fathers and mothers in the faith, living in Jerusalem without a Christian bookstore, without um, any resources except the new revelation of the new covenant and apostles teaching them, going all out for the gospel, sacrificing everything, sacrificing their lives after Stephen was martyred, being scattered all over the world for the sake of Christ. And so I pray that we would take our cue from them, that we would live that sort of life that is devoted to the church of Jesus Christ, devoted to the gospel, sacrificial, all out for the sake of the kingdom of our coming Savior. And we pray in his name, amen.